I am Davo Pavlovich, social media editor for the Journal of Molecular and Cellular Cardiology, or JMCC, and this is JMCC's Scientist in the Spotlight podcast. Today, I will be talking to Ursula Ravens, who was named the Cathy Schwartz Awardee at the recent meeting of the ISHR's European section. Ursula is a senior professor at the Institute for Experimental Cardiovascular Medicine at the University Heart Center of the University of Freiburg in Germany, and I should probably add a pioneer in the field of cardiac electrophysiology. Ursula, it was, it's, a, it's a really, really great pleasure to have you here on our JMCC Scientists in the Spotlight series. I mean, you have left this amazing trail of research and you still keep going. Uh, I, I read somewhere, and maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but apparently there's five decades of research that, uh, that you've spanned effectively. Uh, so I'm not even sure how many research papers you produced, and maybe you're embarrassed to say it, but would you mind sharing it with our listeners? Uh, do, you, do you even keep track of this, these kind of statistics? Very easy nowadays, uh, but before we start this, let me thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about myself. As you know, many scientists like to talk about their research, and uh, this is a really nice uh, opportunity to do so. Well, there are on PubMed, you can easily see, I think listed something like a little more than 340. And uh, I must say many, many of them are collaborative uh, research. In my younger years, I used to be very proud to have written every paper myself, but this is our times long past. So very often I'm only a collaborator. And just this morning, I've had the good news that a, a paper on in circulation research was accepted, which I did together with my successor in Dresden, Ali Elamush. But that's uh, probably something we'll get to talk about later on. Uh, we certainly will. I mean, we, you know, we will cover science, but actually we will also cover the background of, of what prompted you to go into research and what motivated you and what actually kept you moving forward. And to just find out a little bit more about who is Ursula Ravens, the one thing that, I mean, I read many of your papers. I haven't read all 300 of them, but I've read quite a few of them. And I have to admit, I've been inspired by quite a few of them. Um, oh, but thank you. probably impressed me the most is... Um, there was this circulation research uh, spotlight on you, and there was an image of you. Uh, and I don't know if our listeners, have seen this. <laughs> I don't know if our listeners have seen this, but I think you should. Um, so look it up. If you type in Ursula Ravens and go to images, and uh, I think it will pop up. And yes, I mean there's Ursula in her younger days, looking glamorous as ever, with a pipe at a patch clamp system. I think. No, what is it? Oh, it's only a microelectrode. Patch clamp wasn't invented at okay, that time. Okay, right. Well, there you go. Um, so, uh, and I think this was during your PhD days, is that if that's correct? That's, uh, no, it was my MD thesis. And was it? in okay, Germany, you are allowed to do your MD while you're still at medical school. And this uh, picture was taken in Freiburg where I am right now, and in the Department of Physiology, where I did my MD in uh, Raymond Kaufmann's lab. He is no longer alive, I'm afraid, together with Helmut Rittard, who's still in Graz. And we were interested in excitation-contraction coupling, and in particular, in the effects of stretch on isolated myocardium, isolated tissue. So I did my 
MD in rhesus monkey papillary muscles. And we put them into this microelectrode setup, stretched them, switched off the electrical stimulation, and saw that first a little bit of depolarization, and then we saw spontaneous action potentials. And this has been published, now I have to give away my age, in 1967. <laughs> so I learned to do microelectrode techniques with this, and uh, I was fascinated by it because my supervisor, Raimund, uh, gave me the feeling that I was working at the frontier of knowledge. It was absolutely very novel what we were doing. And anybody who asked me, or let me say nobody who asked me about my MD understood what I was doing because they never heard about excitation contraction coupling and spontaneous activity and all these things. But uh, it inspired me and ignited my love for science, I must say. You know, you, you say that, but I, I remember when some of Ben Prose's work with John Lederman came out in 2010, I think, in science, on stretch-activated uh, nitric oxide-mediated contractility and spontaneous activity, and that blew everyone out of the water. But obviously, you were working on this <laughs> way before as well, which is impressive. So, so can I just sort of... I must check whether they cited us. <laughs> I hope they did. I hope they did. So, so when... I mean, I guess you've you've started your research in a medical school. Is yes. That the love of research sort of got ignited and triggered, uh, or was it even earlier than that? No, I did it in, in medical school. Uh, well, in my school days, I had always been interested in natural sciences. I loved physics and biology and mathematics. However, I thought that being in the lab all day, I would probably become a spinster. So I decided medicine may be something where you can combine the two. And that's why I actually joined uh, medical school and I liked it very much but when doing practical work in the hospital at that time it was still very very hierarchical and they always told me when I asked something ah oh, you should know this or you should go and read it up or this is my experience and it was always not as exact as I enjoyed it in the physiology lab. And this is why I decided to do another year or two of research before deciding which medical discipline to join. And I went on to Kiel University to join the Department of Pharmacology because they had an open postdoc position and wanted to have someone who knew how to record with intracellular electrodes. Then I liked it so much that I stayed on and uh, never went back into practical medicine. But it uh, shaped my way of thinking about medical problems. And my research has always been very much related to something medically important, I think. I mean, it's interesting you say that, you know, because I, I guess that kind of path is now probably very unusual. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, do you think that we've lost something by essentially switching off that path where people study medicine and then go into research fully? There's very few scientists that will follow that path. Uh, I think there are big efforts being made to try and combine medical people with basic science again. Uh, we always try to get as many medical uh, students into our institute in Dresden uh, to do their MDs, to get them interested in how to do basic science. 
actually, I strongly believe that it's very important for uh, doctors also to know how all this data that later base their evidence-based medicine on is actually created. And that is why I think they should go and do some basic research during their education. I think it's very, very important for their way of thinking. Yeah, I think that's good advice. That, that kind of brings me nicely to the question that I wanted to ask you. Was there something that in your career you can remember as a significant milestone that you have reached and felt, okay, I think I know what I'm doing now and I'm confident that this is what I want to do? Yes, I think I uh, knew that I wanted to do research when I had done the first couple of years in pharmacology and a decision had to be made whether I would go back into clinics or remain in pharmacology. I must admit, though, that a bit of this decision was also taken by personal considerations because I always wanted to have a family. And I thought it would be much easier to have a family if you can plan things like in a research lab than when you have to go on night duty. And since my husband is also has also been in medicine, I thought two of us being on night duty would mean that one would be away or maybe two would be away a couple of days a week. And I thought that was not arrangeable with having a family at the same time. So that was also a strong consideration for staying in, in science. But it has always been lots of fun and I really, really enjoyed it, despite all the uh, frustrations you have. I mean, I don't want to <laughs> deny that, but uh, I can take a lot of that. And in the long run, I've enjoyed it very, very much. You've mentioned now that you've had to consider your, your life choices and, and career, how compatible those two would be. Have things changed now, do you think? Or has do you think it's still pretty much the same, that science still allows people to plan their careers in life? Well, uh, actually, I never had a proper life plan. Being in school, I wanted to study medicine. Being in medicine, I wanted to finish. And then I made the decision to go back into science, go to into pharmacology. And then, of course, all decisions were made in consideration of what was happening to my family. And, uh, for example, I left Kiel because my husband got a position in Hanover in a big community hospital, and we, it was clear that the family would move to Hanover. And then just by chance, I think, I got my first full professorship at the same time at the University of Essen, because my former boss, Heinz Lohmann, had asked me to test my market value and apply <laughs> for this position. I didn't expect to get it under very strange circumstances. I got it in the end. And then I commuted to Essen to be there in the Department of Pharmacology. Then I tried very hard to get a full professorship, applied very, very often, maybe 10, 12 times. All the German pharmacologists know me very well because we applied together. They always got the position I never did. Dresden was the last position I planned to apply for, and otherwise I would have stayed in Essen all my life. 
it turned out that they wanted me. I was very surprised because the pharmacology department was neuropharmacology and not really cardiovascular, but they chose me and that was an absolutely gorgeous time <laughs> to, to plan everything and to discuss it with your colleagues. I was very lucky that three of my uh, postdocs from Essen came with me to Dresden and we had a huge department. They had a huge pharmacology department in Dresden with something like 50 people, but we had a good solid staff. And this is also where I met one of my most successful students, Dobomir Dobev, who is now in Essen. And he was a young postdoc there. And I told him, well, if you want to uh, make a career under my mentorship, I think you need to change into cardiovascular pharmacology. And this is what he did. And uh, they worked together then with Erich Wettwer, who was another one. And then we were joined by Thorsten Christ, who is now in Thomas Eschenhagen's lab, doing all the electrophysiology for him. And uh, the three of them, Erich, Thorsten, and Dobry were a splendid team. Um, well, I guess Dobromir never regretted joining your group. Then. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> Do you have any key pieces of advice for young scientists starting up? I think they should try and liberate themselves from this enormous pressure to publish, which is very difficult. Uh, the reason why I give this advice is because they must keep an open mind to look sideways, because I think that is where you will also find solutions for problems you will never think of because they're not along your lines. Yeah. I think that's very important. With respect to novel techniques, which may be very difficult to learn in the beginning, but I would also encourage young scientists to enter new fields because in my experience, any subject becomes extremely interesting if you enter it in sufficient depth. If you are only superficially, then, well, you think, well, what's all this about? But once you get into sufficient depth, you always find interesting open questions. And therefore, it doesn't really matter which direction you choose. All you have to um, do is find a point where your interest is caught snap and then that's it so keep an open mind look sideways and try also to repeat experiments which others have published already because there is a lot of stuff in the literature which is just not true i, I could give you a good example one of my big interests in dresden was because we had the max planck institute of molecular biology and genetics, and they were very much interested in regenerative medicine. So I thought, well, uh, looking with electrophysiological tools at cells as they differentiate from, let's say, stem cells into cardiomyocytes would be a very nice way of assessing their differentiation status. And that got me interested in regenerative medicine. That was in the 2000s when Minaché from Paris had just published a very important paper in Lancet about the first uh, myoblast injection into a myocardial infarction in order to improve injection fraction 
And with that, there was a whole lot of cell injecting into uh, the heart with the idea that these cells might become cardiomyocytes, which there were papers published in important journals, which turned out to be not correct in the end. But there are sufficient people in the field who corrected that. And actually, there are uh, uh, there's lots of progress which has been made with engineered heart tissue on the one hand side and trying to uh, have cell ter therapy in, on the other hand, where the Frankfurt group uh, with Zaya and Stephanie Dimmler have done a lot of work in and so on. So why did we get to uh, the regenerative medicine? Yes, lots of things are not true. That was my advice. Please also uh, try to repeat experiments that have been published already because not all of the results that have been published can be actually reproduced. I think that's very, very good advice. I guess sometimes it's difficult to take that approach because you worry about not being able to publish negative data. Well, but you can always publish it in the sideline of a, a paper, but you must be sure that the main findings on which you base your hypothesis and your further research can actually be reproduced in your lab. I think that's very important. No, I, makes sense. I agree with you. Or go to the person and uh, go to that person's lab and uh, collaborate with them. That works very well. Yeah. Just out of interest now, I mean, I guess you've, you've left this amazing trail of research and you still, as I said, keep publishing fantastic work. Um, is, there a, is there a kind of a notable finding? You know, if you were to, to frame a particular piece of work or a particular piece of paper, is there something that really sticks out? Not really. I have, as you said, uh, touched so many topics, which is, I think, characteristical for pharmacologists, because there are so many drugs, there are so many processes to influence that you can get easily diverted. Now, I was very proud of my very first publication in uh, Freiburg with the stretch activated channels, but not so much because I thought it was so important. Only later, when other people who took up the stretch activated channel business, in particular, Peter Cole, always mentioned, do you know that Ursula actually invented the term mechanoelectrical feedback? I said, Peter, this is not true. No, I don't know. This is not true. But then I looked up our first publication in German, and the German expression for excitation contraction coupling is actually electromechanical coupling. And because we did not find the electrical electromechanical coupling, the coupling between excitation and contraction so much, but we stretched, we did a mechanical impulse and then found electrical activity. We actually did call it mechanoelectrical <laughs> feedback, but I had forgotten. And Peter had reminded me and said, well, now I'm always looked at as the person who started mechanoelectric feedback. <laughs> Excellent. I think this is a very, very important piece of piece of news uh, for our listeners. So I guess, you know, that, that brings me into, you brought up some <clears throat> of the questions about techniques and how important it is for the young people to jump on new techniques and to try and adapt them and adopt them as well. And obviously that brings with it 
difficulties and, and uh, but it potentially brings new information as you as you've mentioned and and potentially success in your career as well as fruitful research i mean i guess it feels to me like some of these older techniques are to some extent dying out so it's maybe more difficult to attract people into into you know training for patch clamping because it's just such a laborious work and in terms of the amount of data that you generate it's not always as high as some of these new techniques you know with high throughputs and so do you, what what is your thought on this actually do you think we will still retain these techniques or do you think we will eventually just have to adapt actually but uh, very interesting very interesting and actually i've been thinking about this uh, quite a lot the basic cellular electrophysiological techniques of course were very innovative when I had my early part, the early part of my career. We had in the 70s the invention of the sucrose gap, where it was the first time to be able to patch clamp cardiomyocytes with their functional synthesium. It didn't work as nicely as Hodgkin and Huxley showed in nerve fibers. But that was the first time you could actually measure the currents that underlie the cardiac action potential. The microelectrode event was enormous because you, we didn't know anything. We knew what the ECG looked like, but we didn't know the electrical activity at the cellular level, which we could study with microelectrodes. Then the patch clamp came up with studying the currents much more precisely. Then you could also do excise patches where you could study channel activity and so on. Nowadays, I think we must go back from this highly molecular part and slowly build it up again into the whole thing because in the end we want to treat a patient and we need to understand what happens in the patient. Here, I think the computational sciences will help us a lot to reintegrate it. Now here in Freiburg, we are presently very much interested not only in the electrophysiology of cardiomyocytes, but also of other cardiac cells like fibroblasts and macrophages. And the fibroblast story was something I did in the Katie Schwartz lecture. And the next step will be to go and integrate and study their interaction also electrically, and then go up one further step in tissue, which you can study very nicely in cardiac slices, in organotypic uh, slices. And that must be integrated into the whole heart and into uh, the patient. Your question was cellular electrophysiology. Will we leave this technique? I think no, because First of all, not, not for drug testing or drug screening. I think there the automatic patch clamp is wonderful. But for looking at it, what the real thing is, you need to do the actual experiment. And there are so many differences between what the computer tells you and uh, what you find experimentally. My biggest experience in this was when we studied one of our first uh, studies in atrial fibrillation. They all said, well, this is all known, that the action potential in atrial fibrillation becomes triangular. Yes, but it had been studied before. We studied the effects of blocking IKUR current, this KV 1.5, this 
atrial selective current, as they call it. And you are very interested in this because of our interest in uh, new antiarrhythmic drugs. And then they said uh, IKUR block is known. And there was a paper uh, by Kurt Marsh from Standard Tal's group, and they had shown this in a computational model where they blocked IKUR current in a computer model in sinus rhythm action potentials. And they didn't find a very pronounced action potential shortening, which we found in our real experiments. So they said, well, it's all been published. And they didn't even uh, want to recognize the difference between the computer model and what we had measured in a wet lab. And we had a big discussion about this. In the end, we got our paper published. <laughs> so I think it's important that you do the real experiment. And I think the computer can predict a lot and helps a lot when our mental capacity of thinking in multiple dimension is very limited. It helps us a lot to create hypotheses, but they must be tested, I think, in the real thing. But, you know, when we are recruiting now, People are far more interested in these high throughput artificial intelligence led techniques and uh, getting into the lab is, is some, somehow more difficult to get them to do. But, but I, that, that's why I just wonder whether, whether we will change to some extent because of people's choices rather than what's right for science. I hope actually there'll always be people that are interested in technical aspects of our work as well. Maybe that is a particularly British thing. <laughs> Possibly. Or- that you ask people, what would you be interested in? How do they know? They don't know the field. They don't know anything about uh, what it is going to be like to be in a lab. Many of them have done maybe a master and uh, not even done an experiment for this, but done some literature research or what. So they, they don't really know what is interesting. So I think the best thing is to motivate them by uh, being excited about your topic and mm. trying to, to transfer with some empathy your excitement about the question you are asking and what you want them to do. And you can always say later on, while you're here, after half a year or so, you will know, you will talk to all your colleagues and you will know what is going on there. And you may find something much more interesting, like looking at a high resolution structure of the heart and see what happens in T2 rules and what happens in various patches in the membrane. Or you might uh, be more interested in uh, more general regulatory mechanisms like epigenetic mechanisms, which are very high, have very high priority right now. I'm trying to learn something with Rotsheim in this respect. But uh, it's, it's really uh, what you know what's going on. If you don't know what's going on, how can you decide where you want to go? No, I think that's good advice. I guess, you know, you've contributed a lot to, to many research areas and research fields. And, and probably the, the, the work that I followed the closest is work on atrial fibrillation. And you mentioned it quite a few times as well. With that vast experience of doing work in that area, wh- what do you think is kind of the key question now in, in AF work? Or at least what's the one that's most interesting to you? You may have no- noticed already that I do not really like to focus too much. I would like to always keep little doors open. 
At the moment, I am focusing on looking at how the mechanical environment of cardiac cells and in particular fibroblasts, because I think they are a key cell type to understand the progression of atrial fibrillation, how they react to mechanical forces, how mechanical forces are sensed uh, and answered to by the various cells. So in the lab, I am working right now with Remy Peroni. We are doing a lot of work on stretch activated channels in fibroblasts, but also in other cells. And we are interested in how this is transferred into the extracellular matrix composition. Here we have a very talented young uh, postdoc, uh, Ramona Emik, who studies the stiffness, the, in, the influence of stiffness of the environment on the my myocardial cell and also on the cell itself. And she has found that the level of expression of one stretch activated channel PSO1 actually influences cell stiffness and also influences what is secreted into the uh, medium and how the cells commute uh, with each other because you have to assume that not all fibroblasts are connected uh, to each other. They do express connections, yes, but that may go to other cells or amongst each other. We don't really know or may have a completely different function. So I think that is an important thing to find out. How can we prevent fibrosis in atrial fibrillation? So we need to know what kind of remodeling processes are taking place, not only in cardiomyocytes, but also in fibroblasts and try to prevent them with something which will not have too many side effects. That is on a very basic level, the way I usually think. If you go broader, I think there is an extremely interesting direction in atrial fibrillation trying to do imaging studies of the heart and of electrophysiology like it's done at Johns Hopkins by Natalia Trajanova and her group and many others, of course. This is just a name which comes to my mind. And to predict where ablation should be done in patients. I think that's a very exciting uh, topic for the atrial fibrillation area to go to. And uh, still looking for novel drug approaches because we also must keep in mind that swallowing a pill is much easier than having such a big operation on. I wouldn't like to be operated, <laughs> I must say. But uh, to get to a better treatment option for atrial fibrillation, yes, we need to understand the complexity and we all need to contribute. There are wonderful uh, collaboration consortia around. Atrial fibrillation is being sponsored by the EU, by Fondation Le Duc, by the national um, consortia and, and funding agency. So this collaboration is very, very important. And I have personally profited a lot from the consortia I have been working in. No, I think it's um, these are very good directions to take. I mean, I, I guess we're probably coming close to the end of, I would say, of standard oh, questions, <laughs> questions that, that, that we tend to ask in these uh, podcasts. But, uh, but you provide us really a, a, a wealth of information and, and 
views and, and perspectives. I would like to close now with a question that to me is probably the interesting one. Do you think a scientist should look for some sort of a, a big breakthrough to kind of define their career? Or do you think a scientist should be just proud of their general work that's come out? Uh, what, you know, what should be the primary motivation? Should it be breakthroughs or should it be solid work or should it be career acceptance or should it be recognition in the field, you know, through awards? I mean, you've had a lot of awards in your career and deservedly so. So, you know, in every single respect, obviously, we look towards you as a leader in our field. How do you feel? What, what did you feel marked a success for you? You have mentioned many, many options. And this shows already that each option you mentioned will fit to a different person. And we will have very different personalities as scientists. So it depends so much on, your, on the individual personality, what you would like to do. There are scientists who are extremely accurate and very well focused. And yes, let them look for the breakthrough. I personally am convinced that it takes a lot of serendipity to get where you are. And it also depends a lot on the environment where you are. I was very lucky to be in a very, very stimulating environment right at the very beginning of my career. I can't say that my Kiel experience was always so stimulating. It was tough sometimes, maybe also because there weren't so many women in science at that time. There were, of course, I'm thinking of Edith Böbring, for example, or Martha Vogt, very good uh, women scientists uh, already much earlier than I started in science. And therefore, to answer your question again, which way you go and what you are looking for in science so much depends on your individual personality. There is not the scientist. There are many, many different uh, people. So they depend on guidance on someone experienced who can judge their personality and advise them maybe to go into the right direction. And otherwise, I think you have to follow your own intuition. That's very important. And whether you will do something, I think you painted a very positive picture of myself. When you were talking about it, I didn't think it was me you were talking about. Anyway. I'm afraid it is. <laughs> you, you will have to accept this. <laughs> when, you, when you are there for a long time and when you try to give your very best and when you constantly pursue things, then you will end up with some uh, good work in the end or some nice contribution. I don't want to say discovery, but nice contribution. So we contributed to atrial fibrillation. My group has contributed to the first characterization of ventricular, human ventricular action potentials that were still in essence. We have contributed to drug activity in human tissue, but also in animal tissue and uh, looked at many, many things. But please, before I end, I must mention a very old friend of mine, Alberto Kaumann, because he, he visited us in Dresden very often and uh, did some uh, work together, especially with Thorsten Christ. And 
he always impressed me very much because he was using very simple experimental approaches like contractile activity of isolated atrial trabecular from sinus rhythm patients, from atrial fibrillation patients. And he was interested in the regulation of various uh, receptor systems and how they were regulated during uh, uh, or remodeled during atrial fibrillation. And I was impressed by the amount of information he could extract with his very solid knowledge on pharmacology and basic physiology from these simple results of recording the force of contraction of an atrial trabecular. So always remember, it's not only the sophisticated apparatus which brings you forward. It can bring advances, but it's also what you think about the preparation you are examining and how your how you consider things are working together. So your own concept of what you are looking at is very important in order to be able to interpret things. And you need quite a bit of knowledge to interpret a single curve like a force of contraction curve. I have to admit, I you've inspired me in this uh, in this podcast, and I'm sure you've inspired a lot of our <laughs> listeners as well. And and you've really given us a, a fantastic insight into some of your life and some of your drivers and motivations and and your colleagues as well. And and clearly, the collaborative aspect of your work is very important as well. Thank you, Ursula. Really, really, thank you for this hugely insightful uh, conversation that we just had. Thank the listeners for for listening to us. And please do join us for future podcasts. We've got a lot more interesting and experienced and wonderful scientists coming up. And it really, again, once Ursula, thank you. It's been my pleasure to interview you, Endeavour. Thank you very much, Deborah. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Ursula. Thank you. Thank you.